asked her father, said, um, would you make sure it's a little girl? <laughs> he did, and um, it's me and I'm here. Whether you be lycanthrope, patchwork monster, fangered bloodsucker, any of several flavours of the undead, a medical madman, a spooky child, or just a rank-and-file ghoul, a hearty good evening to all of you out there on this most black and terrible evening as we take our seats aboard the Midnight Video Halloween Special. An express of sonic horrors scheduled to whisk your restless spirits from the House of Frankenstein onto our final resting place at the House of Freudstein, stopping off to pick up lost souls from the connecting service at the Manchester Morgue. Apologising mechanically for the replacement bus service, I'm Jim Hall. Closing up the Buffy car early, I'm Phil Walsh. Mind the doors! So, hopefully as you're listening to this, it is Halloween, and uh, I hope you're all having festive fun. Have you uh, still got any of your fiendish fancies left, Jim? Get out of town. <laughs> They're long gone. I was hoping to get some bread and butter pudding from Greg's ahead of this. You're, you're squinting. That wouldn't have gone down too I well with you. bread and butter pudding. It's horrible. Man, but here we are for the midnightest of midnight videos. Very midnighty. Yep. It couldn't get any midnighter. <laughs> as we sit here on tombstones at Nunhead Cemetery, yeah, overgrown. I'm sitting astride this crucifix. Carving out your pumpkin. <laughs> you were bobbing for apples a little earlier. I was ducking for them as well. And yes, we've got a generous Halloween show tonight. Well, we call it generous. We've not. We don't know what it's going to be like yet. <laughs> but yeah, four films to cover this evening, going right back to the forties and right up to thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah, right up to eighty-one, wasn't it? Or eighty-two. But yeah, I think um, when I was getting prepared for this, I was thinking this will be a nice journey through. Uh, the way horror films were made over quite a sort of yeah huge changes happening over those decades indeed and I've just got um, a little aside because I know Jim you're turning 40 this year don't give them the exact I'm not going to give them I don't want people be having my bank details <laughs> they'll know my mother's maiden name next but it's it's pretty close to it anyway and I've got a little treat for you oh on a Halloween to open on the air so listeners can <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> thank you very so much happy birthday wow do you want me to open this now then yeah go okay. for it it's, it's a little uh, it's like a Christmas paper. present yeah <laughs> man it, uh, is it, it's not more fiendish fancies it's not it's so well wrapped I'm going to have uh, you may have to edit down <laughs> the sounds in the uh, <laughs> I hope you don't have it no I I can see it's a vinyl album of some sort. Ugh. Oh, I shouldn't have put that in. Oh my god! Is this what I... Fucking hell! <laughs> wow, thank you very much. This is the Liquid Sky original soundtrack. And you've just given me the VHS as well. Well, kind of a VHS of it, but... My goodness. No, thanks very much. Cool, man. No, no probs. My man. pleasure. Now, this actually neatly leads on, given this is a completely spontaneous event. I'm going to have to try and get through the ribbon on this <laughs> at some point. Horror films do often, you know, traditionally end with um, the, the, the protagonist having this dreadful ending when they kind of become the thing that they've been fearing and trying to avoid. And I noticed this week that you've become very enthusiastically involved with Lady Gaga. <laughs> I 
have indeed. Yes. Do you somehow feel like the end of films like The Sentinel and The Wicker Man? <laughs> it's well, the thing is, I don't have anything against her because I never really knew what her music was or really what she's about because I'm not that au fait with uh, pop culture these days. Modern, <laughs> modern things. But yeah, um, we were out the other week. We were chatting about it, and then I went home like quite drunkly and just watched loads of her videos, and they're absolutely outstanding. I'm have you watched them away. sober yet? No, not yet. Um, but yeah, I was really impressed, and I, I know you made mention of uh, the similar similarities to Liquid Sky. Yeah, well, um, what is it? Bad Romance, I think, starts with this kind of frappy, fair lighty kind of sound. Yeah, and, synth and and concludes as well. But no, that they are. Um, I, I think her music's a bit um, must try harder. Yeah, well, it's all this horrible auto tune sort of sound, which well, it all kind of sounds. Similar, it does, but there is that really funny song called Judas, and the lyrics oh, yes. are something to behold. Like, I mean, they are biblical. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. With no no, I mean, yeah, I, this is the thing though. How ironic is she? Is she aware of this, or is she being programmed to? Uh, I'd like to think she's to very bright, but then you watch mm. interviews with her when she doesn't seem particularly. Um, I don't know. Maybe she just doesn't. Who who does well when they're being interviewed by Jonathan Ross? <laughs> that's true. Not me, His that's wife. for sure. Well, quite. <laughs> but yes, people are tapping impatiently on the lids of their coffins, waiting for us to get on with um, the first of our horror treats. I don't blame them. Let's, let's do it. Let's head back to the forties. Now, will you give me my chalk? A lunatic doctor following in infamous footsteps, plus Dracula, plus the Frankenstein monster, plus the Wolfman. If you wanted your money's worth, then by 1944, Universal Studios were happy to cram all of the above lovelies into one movie. Adding, most definitely at no extra expense, gypsy romance, heartbroken hunchbacks, burgermeisters, sideshows, and a torch-bearing vigilante mob, all claiming squatters' rights at the House of Frankenstein. Now, with American comics, I think specifically DC, sort of Batman, Superman, there's traditionally a golden age and a silver age. Mm. You familiar with this? Yes. I'm pretty sure Universal horror movies have a kind of similar thing. I think there are purists who say... Um, their great period was uh, it was before Dracula and Frankenstein. I think there were a few 30s. before that, yeah, yeah. Um, up to yeah, kind of the very early forties. I think I'm not sure where this came because watching it, I well, right off the bat, I'll say I really did enjoy this a lot, um, but I can't imagine it's held as a quality product by uh, horror purists, universal horror purists. Do yeah, you know what I'm getting imagine, at? I can <laughs> imagine it's. It's the kind of thing nowadays. It's like Police Academy Five or something. Oh come on! <laughs> no, but in the respect of like, there's been so much before it that mm. um, when it gets to this point, people think, well, there's no point in going any further. It's all been done. Yeah, I'd say more if it's a point when you've got several series going and you start to team them up, which again goes back to comics. I mm. mean, when I was growing up in Britain, um, American comics would be reprinted in like a British format but as soon as there was great news for all our readers on the cover you knew that one of them was uh, not being cancelled but was being absorbed by the other and you were, eventually it would just vanish um, but yeah given the list I'm not going to read it out again but how many monsters there are in this yeah. including on the poster 
the Hunchback, yeah. <laughs> which man, that's I can't imagine even in the forties that was um, that was acceptable. Because the, the, the only reason that they put uh, the mummy in Caris was budgetary restraints, apparently. What the bandages had run out? Uh, well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, Where did you read that? Uh, I think it is the trivia in IMDb or on Wikipedia. God, that was the only reason. That was the only reason. Budgetary restraints. Yeah. I find that hard because it's the they costume would be. They could have just dressed up an extra or I don't know, a lighting guy or something. Well, given there was a magazine called. House of Frankenstein, you know, um, I thought this was going to be a real, really something special. And my assumption had always been, because I've been familiar with that title since I was a kid, that it was going to be a gothic house which had all of these monsters kind of staying in it, not as guests in a bed and breakfast, but you know, you get the idea of what I'm getting at. Whereas what it is, is more kind of a continuation of all their separate um, series. And they, it's I'm reluctant as they cross over because the something I want to say quite early on is it's not really as storytelling done with much skill is it No. what I'm really, getting at yeah. specifically is yeah you don't get them all interacting in one story what you have is bits and pieces it is quite like a Frankenstein monster Yeah. specifically the fact that Dracula just turns up takes over the film for 20 minutes and then vanishes including the people that were involved in his story the kind of victims of it um, well there's a yeah I mean there's an awful lot of um Exposition coming from the mouths of people, so because I didn't really know where these stories were coming from, yeah, um, I was relying on that exposition. So it's useful that it was there, but it's also very lazy storytelling, <laughs> <laughs> which we'll be getting a lot of tonight. Yes. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? With the Dracula yeah. story, it felt like maybe they had an existing story to do a Dracula, and they mm. thought, uh, okay, just give him twenty minutes in the new film because yeah, the story with him is some couple. Um, uh, Carl and Rita Hussman who are going off to some uh, the recent, they're newlyweds or they're romantically uh, involved anyway. they seem to be newlyweds because they seem quite happy with each other and oh yeah and he's like making lots around. of he's making lots of jokes about he has to do what she's saying yeah, yeah. Um, but talk, yeah talk, they talk. appear they, they're involved in the Dracula story and as soon as that's sorted which is about 20 minutes into the film mm-hmm. they and everything to do with them vanishes and then we carry on with the main you know the it's like the, obviously the the producers are just like doing a big tick that right, yeah. that's Dracula done. Yeah, because I'm <laughs> not sure how frequently these came out, but I imagine once a year or maybe twice a year even. Right. But yeah, the linchpin of this film is the fantastic Boris Karloff. Um, we were very impressed with him several shows back in The Body Snatcher, and I think here he's still fantastic. He's... Uh, uh, I can't believe I've seen so few films with him because he's fast becoming one of my favourite actors. Is he elbowing I'm Elliot Gould out of the way? <laughs> he's just, yeah, he's getting up there. I mean, it's just it's his delivery of his yeah. lines. There's something so even when he has the most cursory lines, which are most of them throwaway, <laughs> yes. absolutely throwaway. He just has that. It's a horrible cliche, but he has a presence. That well, he does because yeah, exudes. this this isn't very well written, but he does add some gravitas to it all, and he is a kind of ersatz Frankenstein. Um, he he begins the film um, locked away. That opening is just like it grabs you. <laughs> it does, yeah, a, a sort of uh, dimly lit prison, uh, and the guard getting dragged grabbed through the bars by this bearded Karloff. <laughs> The bearded Karloff, the bearded Karloff. demanding his chalk, and this is such a lovely scene because it then then goes to sort of it shows us within the cell where he's there with uh, J. Carroll Nash as the hunchback, uh, Daniel, or friend Daniel, as Karloff calls him <laughs> peculiarly throughout the film. This scene's so great because it's one of those things where visually they show you what a fruitcake he is because it pulls back and there are all these equations and formulas scrawled in chalk all over there. We know he's been there for fifteen years. And amongst all of that genius, 
and a very detailed um, chalk drawing of a skull that's been divided <laughs> into parts. There's just a very basic drawing of an outline of a man and a dog that's not comfortably curled up under its haunches, you know. And he says, let's carry on with our uh, work, Daniel. So if we take this brain from this man and transplant it into this dog, it will have the mind of a man. And you think, yeah, that's pretty mad doctor territory. But the great thing is, like, a few minutes later when inexplicably there's, uh, to keep the story going, there's a lightning bolt, isn't there, which demolishes the whole prison. It's it's a very low security (laughs) jail. It needed some work going on it. They're then with George Zuko, I thought I'd have a bigger role because by this point he was uh, he played Moriarty, I think, mm. opposite Rathbone in uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, and Karloff's like, um, George Zuko is the owner of this um, traveling sideshow, isn't he, for the horrors, Lampini. Karloff's asking Zuko, oh, are we going to be going to Vasaria? And uh, Zuko's answer is no, they had their own problems. They don't want to see this sideshow of horrors. Fifteen years back, there was a mad doctor who trans- tried to transplant the brain of a man into the body of a dog. <laughs> and I love that. I just thought, wow, for 15 years, that's all he's been working on. <laughs> it's the dog brain transplant. And he's not got any progress with it. But, um, that's yeah. like human centipede. <laughs> I've not seen it, but oh, so. have you not? Oh, right, because there's a. I mean, I'm familiar with what yeah, it's about. Dog experiments uh, preceding the uh, human experiments. But yeah, um, Karloff here as Doctor Neiman has to be the maddest mad doctor I've ever come across. He's very focused. Yeah. Well, he's not. He's all over the bloody shop. Whatever what? happens, really? he, yeah. He just, what's his actual plan? I think ultimately he just wants revenge on the burgomaster of the village, and is it one of his ex assistants? Um, uh, yeah, there was a witness and yeah. an ex-assistant. But he's got yeah. two guys he's got a particular beef with. But it's yeah, because um, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. He's focused on um, getting his revenge, though. This is it. Whatever, whatever crops up next, he'll say, "Yeah, oh, well, this will be my plan now." Um, at one point, because yeah, they're suddenly posing as Lampini, this circus sideshow guy, uh, who's yeah, the real Lampini, is uh, dispatched by Daniel's strangle powers quite rapidly isn't he <laughs> as is the driver and Daniel's like are we going to hide master because everyone will be after us and he says yes but we'll hide in the open <laughs> I think ah, that's kind of clever and counterintuitive but he actually then does pose as a sideshow uh, proprietor with something he firmly believes to be the genuine bones of Dracula which he knows are only being kept in their undead state by a stake through the rib cage. but then he rather absentmindedly takes the stake out or spontaneously to get his revenge on someone he notices in the crowd and then goes he has this look of oh <laughs> before he turns to watch these uh, bones transform into John Carradine as uh, it must be said not the most impressive Dracula he just relies on that really long face and wide open eyes Well, he, which... he's got that thin moustache I know he has a moustache in the book uh, Dracula mm. I'm not sure if he has a top hat as well but the effect here is to just make him look a little bit like a slightly boozy stage magician. I thought he looked a bit like a caricature of Vincent Price, almost. Yeah, <laughs> if only they got Vincent in, yeah. that could have worked. <laughs> but um, you've then got a scene with Karloff holding this stake to Dracula and saying, you know, don't do anything suspicious. <laughs> Not suspicious, but, uh, you know, I've got my eye on you. Don't try anything funny. What I'll do instead is follow whatever you ask me to do. And he says, these things seem to be sort of coming up as he's going along. Mm. I don't know. I, I felt, really, I, I honestly thought his character was just really focused on getting his revenge. And he was kind of 
almost ad-libbing with what <laughs> whatever situation arose. I suppose they had to because you know he's trying to be undercover and you know certain situations are going to uh, beset him. But well, how about this one? Let's say you get to the castle of Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, um, you're looking. Yeah. You're you know trying to find out what's going on. You find the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman. The Wolfman, the Wolfman, <laughs> frozen in blocks of ice, and his response. They Let's might know where the yeah. notebooks are. <laughs> Let's throw them out Let's and ask them. <laughs> exactly. But, but fortunately, Lord most... Janey does know where they are. Well, so. <laughs> fortunately, when they defrost the Wolfman, uh, he, he turns he back into he, re, he, he turns back into Lon Chaney Junior, um, who's um, who doesn't die of hypothermia immediately or anything. He, he sort of hangs around with his hands in his pockets, talking about how he wants to die. <laughs> um. I, I love this, you know. Just odd things like that make up the entire, what is it, 70, 80 minutes? Yeah, like seven, it's <clears> very short. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, but a, it crams it's a, a heck of a lot in. Affair, but it, yeah, it does. It manages to get them all in somewhat coherently. I think you're going along with it as it happens, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah because they pick up Alanka. Oh, the gypsy, the girl, gypsy girl who uh, Daniel the Hunchback takes an immediate shine to. Yeah, and I thought, well, what. what Possibly because she adds to the story apart from um, an unrequited love interest. But. A love triangle between the hunchback, exactly, the wolfman, and the gypsy. And something else forms. And I was like, wow, well, you know, fair play. You, you brought that together. Yeah. Was- well, no, that is the main story for me. Although it's. Um, even in something as ludicrous as this, I, I love the fact that Alanka, the gypsy girl, falls in love with Larry Tolbert, even though he's this paunchy guy, isn't he? Yeah, this, he's not uh, the best looking chap. But he does have he he really uh, has this air of like melancholy about him, and it, it, it works quite well for the yeah. character. You know, I could imagine that might have been Lon Chaney Junior himself. As well, actually. yeah, because yeah, he was after all those years doomed of, to uh, doing yes, transforming, transforming every few months. <laughs> um, but then Doctor Neiman's next crazy plan, which is um, I can lift the curse of the Wolfman. I'll build you a new brain. Well, you know, ten out of ten for trying. Well, I do like that idea that um, he's, he's acknowledging a gypsy curse exists, but somehow he can overcome it, and that the uh, the centres of the body that control wolf transformation are in the brain, and that he still will be Larry Tolbert with chunks of his brain. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll discuss this in um, another film, but you know, science <laughs> and magic coming together, uh, or superstition. Sorry, when Neiman does, uh, it sounds like we're giving away a lot of the film, but I, it. It doesn't do anything terribly surprising story-wise. It's more no. the, the, the execution of it. <laughs> when Karloff kidnaps these two guys, he's after the Burgermeister and the Witness. His uh, his plan is to take the brain of one and put it into the Frankenstein monster, which would just make him strong, I should think, um, and to get the other and give him the Wolfman's brain. Yes. Daniel the Hunchback wants Tolbert's body. But Karloff won't give him it because he thinks that Talbot's body is a perfect resting place for the monster's brain. He's the maddest mad doctor I've ever seen. <laughs> and he wears a flat cap. It's a particularly downbeat ending, I thought. Um, the whole sort of... I suppose there are no winners, ultimately. But I did quickly read um, the plot of the sequel to this. Or not the sequel, the follow-on, um, which is... Is uh, it follow Oh, yeah, man. Abbott and oh. Costello is the end of it all. Oh, Abbott and Costello oh, meet Frank Oh, near the end of everything. <laughs> the Alpha and the Omega. Um, House of Dracula. And I, uh, I, or I was just reading the plot of that, but it sounds like Dracula and the Wolfman are back in this with very little explanation. Given, yeah, they're dead again at the end of this, in a fairly definite way. But yeah, it's uh, it's corpses galore and a very abrupt ending. Very abrupt, yeah. 
one of those where I'm sort of watching the counter thinking how can they finish this <laughs> in the next two minutes yeah. but no I, I think overall it was uh, it was really great fun for me it was that wonderfully slapdash put together sort of feel but it did have atmosphere and yeah and Carlos just fantastic it's worth watching just for, and also um, um, J. Carroll Nash no Chaney I, really, oh. I loved it I loved him that is the sort of lugubrious morose wolf man <laughs> we've ridiculed this quite a bit There's something I did genuinely like which is the possession of Rita mm. uh, by Dracula I thought that was actually quite a good bit I wish I'd written down some of the dialogue but she does have some quite interesting lines and that was yeah amongst all these kind of um, very traditional movie monsters I just thought that was a nice bit but um, yeah I'm, I'm, I've watched a few universal horror movies recently and enjoyed them but this was the most <laughs> I'm hoping this is what that Avengers movie next year is going to be like <laughs> just quite poorly thrown together and that'll do kind of attitude well it is Joss Whedon Hi Jim, hi Phil, this is Colin from the Scottish Review of Books podcast wishing you a happy Halloween. I've got a trick and a treat for you. My trick would have to be Suspira. As a teenager I was desperate to see this film, I'd read so much about it. I remember saving up my pocket money and buying it on VHS and getting to the end of the film and just having a terrible, overwhelming sense of disappointment. I thought the film was noisy, flashy, incoherent and not even scary. In fact, I'll go further and say, I think Dario Argento's entire career is overrated. My treat? Well, I don't think Halloween is complete without an appearance by Vincent Price, particularly in 2011, which is his centenary. And the Vincent Price film in particular I'd like to nominate is The Tingler, where um, old Pricey gets to be the hero, sort of, for once. Um, if you've never seen The Tingler, this is the one in which uh, Price plays uh, a scientist investigating the effects of fear. And during his researches, he discovers that there's a parasite which uh, lives in the spine and feeds on fear, which he calls the Tingler. And this Tingler, which is an odd-looking thing, can only be disabled by screaming. It's worth watching for two scenes alone. One is the hysterical scene in which Price takes uh, LSD, um, has to be seen to be believed actually, and the other scene is one in which William Castle, the director, breaks the fourth wall to tell the audience that there's a tingler loose in the cinema and they have to scream for their lives. I've never seen a tingler in a cinema but I'd love to, I imagine the atmosphere must be fantastic. Anyway, um, that's me going to go next door now, so uh, speak to you soon, guys. Well, thanks very much, Colin. Nice one, mate. Yeah, cheers. And in fact, um, I'm not sure if I should publicise this. I should, because... Uh, <laughs> You're going to be playing your Liquid Sky vinyl soundtrack live on Radio yep. 1 next week. 1FM. Whatever. Whatever it is now. <laughs> um, no, um, I will be with Colin on the Scottish Review of Books podcast. Um at the same time that this uh, this special goes up, uh, where we're going to be talking about the seventh victim by Val Luton and Eraserhead. Um, but yeah, the reason I was a bit reluctant is I've not heard back what the finished um, chat was like, so uh, it may not be my best hour. We'll see. <laughs> uh, but yes, poor old Dario Argento. Oh, he's getting a good kick in there, isn't he? Yeah, who knows? Before the end of the night, we may get some more callers. Maybe. Who will be grabbing hold of those sacred cows. And milking their udders <laughs> brutally until they're yeah. black and blue. And chopping them off with razors and leather gloved hands. 
Like Calm down. <laughs> it's wishful thinking. For the love of God. <laughs> the Tingler, have you ever seen that? I haven't. Um, I've got it at home, actually. Uh, it's one of those films that I've, I want to watch it how it was meant to be watched, though. It's at the cinema. <laughs> yeah, at the cinema with but a with the Well, yeah, you know that whole story. <laughs> yeah, of, um, yeah they, I saw they, the William Castle they, documentary. <laughs> a while if anyone doesn't know, I mean, it's quite infamous. But, yeah, when it was originally shown, uh, cinema seats selected cinema seats would actually have this kind of electric buzzer beneath them which uh, would electrocute people <laughs> what if one of you is the monster monster they're british you know the world of competitive victorian anthropology is justly famed for its many rivalries none greater than that between fun-loving peter cushion and snotty old christopher lee when the zany pair wind up fighting over both a foxy Polish countess and the two million year old remains of a frozen ape man, neither scientist really expects to end the night facing a brain boiling alien parasite or indeed Telesavalis, but hey, everyone knew what they were letting themselves in for when they boarded 1972's Horror Express. So I didn't know anything about this film at all. Had you heard of it? No, I hadn't. Oh. Never come across it. And it's the second film we're doing from a Spanish director tonight. Already? Well, the next one after this is... Uh, yeah, we'd usually try and travel the world a bit, but it's the Halloween special, so yeah. um, we're going to bend, bend our own rules. But it's quite interesting, the sort of history of well, it's kind of horror exploitation cinema, whereas I suppose through the 70s uh, there's, the Italians were more famed, and certainly in the early 80s. But there are like sort of little pockets of, obviously, Jess Franco is probably the most famous, or infamous, mm-hmm. But yeah, I've never heard of uh, Eugene, Eugenio Martin, a.k.a. Jean Martin, or Martin, probably, isn't it? Um, who came up with Horrex, but I think he had the original story and then someone did a screenplay for him. Well, better than that. Oh. The story I'd originally heard, but I think now there's some doubt about it, is that the whole thing was based around the fact that the producer got hold of a model train from Nicholas and Alexandra. Alexandria. Um... And I thought, yeah, well, this is too good a prop to lose, so I'm going to build a film around it. Um, he actually denied it, and he said he, it was a, f- um, a model train and all the interiors were actually things he'd had built for a movie called um, Pancho Villa with Telly Savalas. There was the one he made before this. Yes, um, which sounds a bit more likely, but I do like the idea of just finding a model train and thinking, it's too good a, it's too good a model to you know just chuck out, I'm going to build a whole film Because I did it. read that all the interiors were, they only had one set, so they redid them, they filmed everything in that one and then re, you know, re, redressed the set. Yeah, and, and, and why not? I mean, I think this, or the film stock's a little bit rough and ready, uh, yeah. or that may have been the transfer watching, because it's public domain now. It's, yeah. uh, I, don't, I think when that happens, people aren't so... Um, aren't so keen to invest money in cleaning up the print but I think it looks really good it's got a great atmosphere as well I mean I, I just I have seen this um, two or three times before it used to be on TV a lot in the 90s certainly and I love it well it, it was for me it was a really pleasant surprise um, like you say I think it was really well shot and certainly the opening sequences where they're at the um, although there was something because it opens up in China and you've got a yeah. voiceover from Christopher Lee as um, Saxton, is it? Uh, or Saxon, something like Saxton that. Saxton. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stax is a sole producer. <laughs> and then the end, and then they um, show uh, a title card, not a title card. Um, yeah, kind of that. Well, yeah, a caption well, saying. A caption yeah. saying that they're in Shanghai. 
and then the next thing you know someone's saying so what are you doing in Peking <laughs> <laughs> lovely but that aside I thought all those scenes in the train station were brilliantly shot they were really like cinema verite there was yeah, I'd not thought that, but yes. There was a real essence of reality about it. No, I mean, going back even further than that, the opening of this, which is this very bleary light, it's meant to be the train coming through the night, so you've just got this light rattling around. Oh, with yeah, with this whistle, this uh, whistly mm. theme tune, which got, gets a little funky later on. <laughs> Um, Although the board director of photography had the light over his name, yeah, the only one to have. <laughs> and it's got that lovely thing. Uh, it got that lovely thing again because it's public domain. It wasn't a great um, transfer I was watching, but the credits are all cut off at the edges, aren't they? Yes. Which I remember was, was the way it used to be on TV as well. Um, which, uh, well, let's not go on about aspect ratio because we've, no. we, we've been getting into trouble with that lately. <laughs> we? we'll with, uh, yes. Um, but no, I I just love that rivalry between the two of them. Um, they they really are an odd couple. It's clear that Cushing's character loves to wind up lead. They've crossed paths and crossed swords several times in the past. Mm. I think you really get a sense of them having some history together. The characters, rather as well as the actors. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that that uh, opening when we first see them at Shanghai or, or Peking, <laughs> whichever it is. Mm. And, and it's something that goes through the film is just that sense, even though this is made in the 70s it's set in like 1906 I think yeah. um, that sense of the British having to put up with uh, the foreigners Yeah. because <laughs> as soon as they're at the station um, there's, there's some uh, haggling and bartering over whether they've got a ticket or not, You know, it's clear they'll, they'll take a bribe, that's what they're um, that's what the officials are angling for later on there's the threat of police brutality or army brutality when I think um, some people want Christopher Lee to open up this big case he's got containing um, the frozen ape man he's discovered but yeah um, Cushion with his um, lesbian sidekick <laughs> Miss Jones Miss Jones who looks a lot like Miss Tanner from Suspiria I thought wow um, just looking at Cushion he's so debonair it's unbelievable how good he looks he is I think it's because you'd usually think of him as a lunar uh, you know Mad scientist Frankenstein, <laughs> a lunatic. <laughs> well, yeah. The thing is, Lee's very debonair as well. I mean, he's quite a charmer, I think isn't Cushion he? Really, he's, he's got he's something of yeah, a Roger Moore kind of feel yeah. to him almost. I, I think it's probably because he's or a, Christopher Plummer. Yeah, actually, that's yeah. that's a very good comparison. There's something about the relaxed nature he's got, mm. whereas like Lee's character is very sort of uptight and quite staid. And, yes. But Cushing, he's got that little bit of, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be down with the natives. And, uh. well, well, this is it. I could really imagine uh, the guys, uh, they're, they're kind of an odd couple. And mm. I could imagine Mitchell and Webb or something <laughs> remaking this. It yeah. is very much like the characters in Peep Show, that odd couple thing of the uptight one and the one who just does whatever the hell occurs to or him. Fry and Laurie. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, that's great. And I was, because they both look like they're having a good time, the actors. Um, Definitely. Involved in this. Although I read this was very recently, it was very soon after Cushing's wife died, which I know you know, it would be devastating anyway, but he really did take that very badly, he was devoted to her, and um, I think he wanted to back out of the film but then Christopher Lee was asked to come on board and he kind of convinced Cushing Sweet. to stay, yeah, or yeah. just throw himself into the work, and yeah this is great, I mean, we, I've got to say the original plan for tonight was to do a universal horror movie with all of those monsters in, um, as you said, the one that was absent was The Mummy so what I wanted to do for the second film was a Hammer Mummy film, but mm. they're quite crap, <laughs> I'm afraid. I do like the idea of the mummy, but 
having watched Shroud of the Mummy, which is the one we were going to do, all the mummy does is sort of wander around and wallop people. And so this was my kind of replacement. It's much more of a Hammer film than that is, because yeah. it has got Christopher Lee and Peter Cushion on absolutely top form. The Mummy's a much better mummy. It doesn't just walk around clobbering people. It's Far from it. <laughs> man, it's like Boris Karloff in the previous film had come up with a plan for this. Yeah, um, well, that's something yeah, I wouldn't mind talking about, is like the actual plot. is, is bonkers. But I brilliant. didn't see it coming at all. Oh, great. I'm not sure if we should discuss it then. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, think we have to, because it's such a... Yeah, I'd, I think if you really, really want to watch this... And it is fresh, fantastic. And it's worth doing that, is... Yeah. Zip forward. Yeah, don't. <laughs> I don't know how long to zip forward through, but <laughs> I know the we've next done it as an extra shows. previously. But um, this isn't the ninth configuration. No, I mean it's not all. It doesn't all change upon it. But yeah, well, let's talk about what happens. So it's this two million year old missing link, um, which I think actually you watch this fresh, as you say. Did it strike you as odd when someone tries to um, break into the case? that the uh, the hand of this monster is able to sort of pick locks did that strike you as odd and it did i was i was very puzzled by it or did you just I think it was sloppy no no i didn't think it was sloppy i mean it was far too an elaborate uh, take to do because it's all a hand doing quite intricate movements and then after the next um, death and something that happens after that, I was like, ah, yeah. right, I see. It is. There's an appropriation. Yeah, because, um, yeah, the monster doesn't just go on the rampage. It boils people's brains out, uh, <laughs> makes their eyes turn white and it bleed. It their brain smooth, doesn't it? As a baby's bottom. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I think is a, a, that's a great effect, I think. The eyes... I think that happened a lot in 70s horror films the milky contact lenses mm. but that's the kind of sign that the monster's got hold of someone yeah. um, it's the same as in uh, Fortress City of the Living Dead white eyes yeah. bleeding from yeah. them but I think that's great but it turns out that this is something um, it's an alien entity which has possessed this um, this ape man back at the dawn of time and even that's a stepping stone from all these other uh, stages of evolution on earth that mm. it's um, passed through um, I just think that's brilliant. It's, I think it probably was taken from uh, Who Goes There, the thing from Another World, the story oh, it's based right. on. Although, interestingly, because obviously the first uh, Howard Hawks thing from Another World is just a monster, mm. pretty much. The Carpenter one is when you get that shape-changing um, body um, entity jumping from body to body yes, yeah. thing. So this is kind of like a nice demo, almost. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, interestingly, because the prequel to the thing is just coming out in the cinemas now hasn't had a good feedback from what I've heard but yeah this would probably be a better film to watch as a as a prequel to the thing undoubtedly I mean there's yeah, it, there's some quite shocking not shocking moments but you know there's some, some titillating sections of gore for people yeah certainly uh, when you get to see someone smooth the brain the two of them have to pull off this kind of um, not brain so an autopsy at short notice with a hacksaw on this wobbling train Trans-Siberian Express um, and yeah I think that looks fantastic the monster itself looks fantastic you know it's all good stuff mm, yeah the, and it has a sort of the eye of Hal or something doesn't it oh yeah that's another great show. It does, yeah the monster's eyes glow red when it's about to sort of boil someone's uh, head but there's this very weird electronic buzz which yeah. is very much, I'd imagine, of that Edwardian era, or certainly um, 
as an aside, when I first watched this, it was when I was at college in Wales, and the landlord was very cheap, so his TV made those, uh, lots of things around the house <laughs> were kind of fairly worrying electrical items that could um, could kill you at any, any moment. moment. Yes. Well, that that leads me on to actually the. Um, I thought the sound was brilliant because in these kind of like cheaper films, usually you have, especially all set on a train, you'd have just loads of looping. Which was like, I mean, it was all done um, post-synced anyway. Yeah, I read it was filmed silently. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. Apparently, yeah, and everything I read that was as done well. in ADR after. after. Yeah. yeah, but um, they did really well not to like do it so obviously because uh, there were some moments where you'd you'd hear crockery rocking in the corridor and then mm. they'd go into another room and it'd be a different sound and Create there's a whole different great yeah. attention to detail which really sort of lifted it up from maybe a cheaper sort of Hammer movie. The dubbing, as as with a lot of other films, the dubbing adds a certain kind of weird atmosphere to it as well. Because yeah. it's clear that a lot of the actors playing the um, the train staff aren't... Um, well, they've got a lot of uh, white people as Asians as well yeah. early on, which is, <laughs> yes. which is yeah, it's a bygone era, luckily. And, uh, Fortunately. The, the, the sort of holy man who appears at the... Oh, Rasputin. Train. Yeah, very much. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I was going to say, we're lucky, we've even got the Mad Monk in... Uh, hey, yeah, that's the, an extra level, which Christopher Lee played in a Hammer film. <laughs> um, Did you think, because there is, um, without being a spoiler, really... It, it comes to uh, Dr. Wells and Saxton Lee and Cushing's characters that there's some sort of transference taking place through the eyes and they analyse the substance from the creature's eyes. Yeah. Didn't that remind you of the Theatre Bizarre that we saw? You know, the short... Uh, it didn't occur to me, because I think when I watched Theatre Bizarre, which is the film we watched at um, Fright Fest, um, that idea struck me as something I was familiar with and mm. I think yeah alright I'd seen it in this and I think um, yeah there's an old Doctor Who story called Ark in Space which has a oh, similar yeah. kind of thing going on I just assumed it was a um, trope if I can use that word right. <laughs> that occurred and it was just done in a particularly gruesome way what, what in, was this 72? Uh, this was 72 and yeah it just reminded me one of the first time the one of the reasons I was familiar with this I had seen it before obviously but the um a few shows back I was talking about these big hardback horror books I used to have this was one that did crop up and I remember it didn't say anything about the film it was just in an introduction and it just had a few plates of photos and one of them was um, Lee and Cushing in these Victorian outfits Lee I'm pretty sure it was Lee with a syringe going into an eyeball in a kidney dish I just thought you know, as an 8 or 9 year old whatever I was I thought man that looks fantastic isn't it it's a bit sort of and she and Andalou about it. I, I wasn't thinking that at the time. I just thought, <laughs> man, look at that eyeball. <laughs> the next thing on it was Edward Woodward next to this hand with um, candle wicks coming out of the top. And I thought, man, I want to see that film at some point. So, yeah, I've been very upbeat about this film. One thing I haven't mentioned is Christopher Lee's Astrakhan hat. I think that's fantastic <laughs> uh, at the beginning. Um, Telly Savalas as well. Well, this is the thing. At around the, yeah, 50-minute mark or something, an hour into it, I'm thinking... This is great, but the limits of the fact it's set in this very claustrophobic setting. If you've ever had a film like that, you have to come up with something to really um, keep it keep your interest for that amount of time. Of and oh boy, do they keep your interest here. What a shot in the arm. <laughs> shot in the eye. Man. Uh, yeah, The um, obviously with so many people dead... Um, and I think, yeah, you've got the usual thing with uh, the police not wanting to panic the passengers. Mm. <laughs> that there's a two million year old ape possessed by an alien um, <laughs> lumbering around. Um, 
they stop off and pick up um, some Cossacks board led by Telly Savalas, who's pretty much playing it as Kojak. Yeah. <laughs> he loves your baby. Well, he's wearing this red coat. I'm not sure if this is historically accurate. It's <laughs> this red, it looks like a woman's coat with black fur lining. In fact, it looks very much like the one that David Norton picks up in American Werewolf. <laughs> yes. When he wakes up in the zoo <laughs> and has to just what? grab this uh, coat from a bed. I think it is kind of historically. I think it is kind of historically. I hope it is. I kind of hope it isn't because uh, it it does have this. When we first see him, yeah, there's this old guy working in the office who's taking this um, like a ticker tape little um, message, little papa, yeah. <laughs> um, and he calls out for the uh, for Savalas as Captain Kazan, and he's under some f- animal skins with a woman, with a woman isn't he? Yeah. Uh, but I like the idea that Savalas's character is so comfortable in his sexuality that he turns up to do business wearing a woman's coat. Because <laughs> he does, he immediately gets on the train, um, identifies the aristocrats on board, and sort of very, he's very formal with them and sort of um, an apologetic and leads them off, and then just really rips into everybody else, Peasants. doesn't he? <laughs> Peasants, <laughs> troublemakers. Actually, one of the aristocrats, the Count, he, we've seen him before in uh, the case of the Bloody Iris. Ah, he was the father of that lady. That lady. Let's <laughs> not give it away. Yeah, um, man, Savalas is absolutely fantastic in this. It, it, in fact, it made me then go onto YouTube to start watching chunks of Kojak. Cause, um, <laughs> again, when I was at college in Wales, that was being repeated very late at night, and I just loved it. Me and um, little Jim, who wasn't actually a person. He, he, I'm not talking about a piece of my anatomy. <laughs> No, the two of us used to love watching Kojak. He was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I've, I've vague memories of watching episodes when I was younger. My grandmother loved it, but check it out. Yeah, no, no, no he uh, he definitely gives a whole film a little uh, bump. Definitely, certainly gives Christopher Lee a bump. Doesn't he beat <laughs> yeah, him up with somebody else's rifle? rifle yeah, yeah <laughs> it's terrific. Gives him all what for. Um, but yeah, it's very much a cameo from him. But he's 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 absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, the only kind of letdown with this is the ending's a little bit so-so. But you know, we, we've established this was done fairly cheaply, but really works wonders in every other department. So you, you're used to these very kind of explosive endings, and this is a little bit. Oh. Yeah, I didn't mind the ending. Um, I, to be honest, I was more surprised that there wasn't some sort of. Um, obtuse coda but um, maybe it was, was in the era before those actually yeah. there's a really lovely bit towards the end um, which yeah, if you're listening now you probably don't mind being spoiled too much but there's a point when the monster does eventually possess people and so it's articulating itself fully but there's a point when Christopher Lee's ready to shoot it and when it explains its whole journey over these millions of years working its way up through um, the food chain and the evolution chain it's almost like Lee wa- doesn't want to kill it because he realises scientifically that so much knowledge and experience will just vanish. Have you seen Star Crystal? Um, I've zipped through it. It's, uh, it's very similar to that, I thought. <laughs> very similar indeed. Okay. <laughs> but no, um, that does raise one question, which is what's the monster's motive here? Does it just kill people for the sake of it? Or is it boiling their brains out because it wants their knowledge? It's kind of hungry for information. Well, he's been sort of... Frozen ice for two million years. You might just want to see what was going on. Larry Talbot didn't start boiling people's brains out, though. That was only fifteen years. He just put his hands <laughs> in his pockets and uh, he was happy where he was. <laughs> Hi, Phil. 
Hey Jim, this is Dan from the Mondo Movie Podcast. I have a treat for you, and that treat is the film Revenant, directed by Richard Elfman in 1998. Now this is a fantastically funny, subversive, strange, silly, oddball vampire comedy uh, made in the late 90s. It's written by Matthew Bright, uh, the crazy genius behind the Freeway films, and it features one of the strangest casts you're ever likely to see in a low-budget horror movie, including Casper Van Dien, Udo Kier, Kim Cattrall, Craig Ferguson, Natasha Lyonne, and the great Rod Steiger. So if you've ever wanted to see Rod Steiger play Van Helsing as an ageing ex-Nazi war criminal whose team of vampire hunters consists of gun-toting LA gang members, Revenant is the film for you. Um, it's filthy, it's funny, it's gory, it's weird, it's got a theme tune by Danny Elfman, and I just know it's the sort of film that, if your listeners haven't seen it, uh, they will absolutely love. It's also known as Modern Vampires in the US, uh, which is a terrible title, but in the UK you can buy it on DVD as Revenant. So that's my treat for all you guys. If you want to see a really strange, cool and funny vampire movie, uh, then you could do a lot worse than check out Revenant this Halloween. See ya. Okay, before we um, recorded this earlier this week, I put a thing out on Twitter and Facebook asking people to send in their Halloween top threes. Sort of ideal triple bills. Yeah, n- not necessarily of this year or, or what, oh, no, what, just, what you'd plan to watch. Just things to night. snuggle up with <laughs> under your tartan blanket <laughs> on a Halloween night. And we've had some good feedback, um, Phil. Yep, so from. Rich Wells, my ideal my ideal Halloween triple bill. Reckon I'd start off with Halloween three, season of the witch, to get everyone in the seasonal spirit. Then something punchier to follow: the intense gore and tension of Alanteria, or Inside, and hopefully have everyone wincing and squirming in their seats. Finally, to lighten the tone and send everyone home with a smile, the unintended hilarity of chainsaw slasher pieces. Halloween three rather than the other ones, then. For me as well, it's all about wow. Halloween. It's odd. I always thought that as that was quite unpopular, but now it seems to have a renaissance. There's a yeah. whole whole generation of your younger folk who seem to like. Yeah, it. if you go on Twitter, is there's a lot of love for it. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I think it's it's the fact it's so far removed from the others, mm. and uh, yeah, you know the hand of Nigel Neal still there somewhat. Yes, in vaguely. No, absolutely, it is. But no, and because it was just so confusing that there's the two Michael Myers movies, and then there's this other thing. But I think wasn't Carpenter's intention to make Halloween just a banner for an anthology? Yes, yeah, kind of series. Um, yeah, thanks for that, Rich, and congratulations on your uh, new job. Excellent. And for we'll mention this now. Yeah, you, you may have noticed uh, a banner has changed on the website and a little icon on iTunes. Uh, so. Thanks to Rich for your extra work there. I think we look fantastic. Yeah, it looks amazing. Cheers, dude. Thanks, mate. Um, Hans Olu Johansson. This year, my top three are all rewatches. Trick or Treat, trying to crowbar this into some kind of tradition. Stakeland, as I enjoyed this immensely earlier this year. And lastly, Dead and Buried, always room for some Dan O'Bannon. Have you watched that yet? Yeah, I've seen it. Um, I wasn't overly keen on it, but it's something that... I'd, I'd quite poster. like to rewatch Wicked poster yeah. Fantastic poster um, And Stakeland Have you seen that? I remember when we had The shock of our lives Earlier this year When we saw Kelly McGillis In, in Keepers <laughs> Yeah uh, You said Oh no she's in Stakeland Yeah um, I've only seen They had a clip of it At the Fright Fest The year before um, I, I'm not in a hurry To be honest Oh uh, And Trick or Treat I have 
at home. I think I remember the Mondo guys reviewing that. That's the anthology one, is yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, I know they're really they're fans I of that. Like that yeah. Or Dan, Dan maybe. Yeah, sure. but I still haven't got round to it. <laughs> okay, cheers, hands. Uh, Mark Bloomfield. Well, Halloween's always a good start, and then I guess it would have to be something a bit more light-hearted. So I'd go for Reanimator and Brain Dad. Brain Dad. Brain Dead. <laughs> dead. I'm Brain Dead. Yeah, cracking. Oh, well, the, the, those last two. I'm not too keen on Halloween to be honest. Man, the Halloween Halloween three splits. <laughs> Absolutely appearing here. Nick Sauer, hi Nick. The only film I have that is somewhat close to a Halloween tradition is Murno's Nosferatu. This year, I have a real hankering for Night of the Demon, though if I had to add a third, it would probably be let the right one in. So we're going, wow, round the houses a bit there. Have you seen the Murno Nosferatu? Uh, no, I Other than those famous two or three clips they always show. Yeah, of it. no, I've only seen Herzog's. Night of the Demons, fantastic. Let the right one in. I know everyone loved that. I wasn't that. I'm not too keen on that. I'm so impressed. Although uh, uh, I really hated. I couldn't finish the book. I thought the book was terrible. Um, didn't appeal to me at all. Uh, I'd started watching the remake actually quite recently, hmm. and that goes in quite a different direction. But I didn't manage to finish it unfortunately. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll rectify that. Yeah. Cheers, Nick. And from Ross Giles, I'd go with Dawn of the Dead, An American Werewolf in London, and Carnival of Souls in that precise order. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Um, well, I've not some... Seen, I still haven't seen Carnival of Souls. Haven't you? No, it's really bad. Um, oh, we'll have to sort that out. American Werewolf's absolutely fantastic. That's really one of my favourite movies. And I know Dawn of the Dead, you, you, you won't hear a word said against it. <laughs> Day, Day of the Dead, that's what the one everyone should be watching. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm assuming, Ross, you mean the original Dawn of the Dead rather than the remake. I like the remake. I love actually, the remake, but, um, yeah. I prefer it to the original. Well, well which is hey, heresy. We, <laughs> <laughs> it's the night of heresy. Dario Argento's already had a bit of a kick in. Who knows who else will? And um, that, what's the thing? Halloween's meant to be the perfect night for horror film fans, but this will hopefully frighten horror movie fans if they hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All these iconic the uh, movies and movie directors get in a damn good scene too. <laughs> <laughs> Phil McGee, Ringu. I first seen this on Halloween night on Film 4 knowing nothing about it. The Exorcist, no explanation needed. And The Ancient, it's not that ancient, it's 19 years old. BBC TV doc drama Ghostwatch as Mr. Pipes is terrifying and I used to kind of have a thing for Sarah Green. Um... <laughs> Because it is so ancient, and also we have some overseas listeners, we should explain Ghostwatch. Um, this was, it was on Halloween night 1992, and was presented as a drama, it was at a cast list in the Radio Times, it was part of a uh, drama series with an introduction and everything, but it was staged as, um, as a kind of live TV event with a studio with some real TV presenters with a live broadcast from a house in North London that was alleged to be haunted. What can go wrong? What could go wrong? Well yeah, this was more the Nigel Neal thing. The thing <laughs> is um, kind of famously um, a lot of people turned on to this with, without seeing the beginning and were taken in by it and thought it was real. So when the inevitable stuff happened and the, the young girls in this house started speaking in strange voices and people were phoning up to say they'd seen something in the background and... Uh, all sorts of uh, stuff like that, and you know, building up to this ex um, possession taking place inside the studio with um, cozy old Michael Parkinson wandering around. 
possessed but still speaking in his Yorkshire accent, which is a particularly lovely scene. Um, no, a lot of people were very angry that they'd been taken in by it. And I only saw this for the first time um, last weekend. And it is, it's one of those odd things because you can watch it now and think, God, how was anyone taken in? Because it's very clear that the actors are acting, if you see there's that kind of theatricality about it. But you never know. If you, Maybe if you had watched this not knowing about it. I think we're so have. used to... I think you're used to things it, being, you know, um, hoaxes and whatnot. But it is, I think it's all up on YouTube. And I was surprised after watching it the other week, um, I did a little bit of research on it. It does have a very enthusiastic following who are sort of getting hold of every reference they can to it. And Am I wrong in thinking the Bear 5 released it? Or? It is available on DVD, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, it's a curious old thing. Oh, but yes, BBC, Mr. Pipes was the ghost. Uh, yeah. Who knows? This would probably have been the boom boom age of uh, those independent producers. I'm right. not sure. Sometimes you do, do get odd things like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's similar to that Peter Jackson one that we saw at the Cigarette Burns night where he... Mm, pretends to have found this... Pretends to have found... Pioneering the, New Zealand filmmaker. Yeah, something. but it had a similar kind of reaction. A lot of... New Zealanders were very upset that they'd been uh, led at the garden yeah. path as it were which they literally do at the beginning of the film because he goes down the garden path to the shed where Absolutely. he finds all these uh, reels of film but yeah, but the, the great unwashed British public watching this on <laughs> Halloween night and thinking they were genuinely watching a ghost possession that was being broadcast live and carried on for an hour <laughs> and then just went on to the football results afterwards as if well, ir- irrefutable proof of life beyond the I grave. Think churches the next day had <laughs> yes. never been so full. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, good good stuff, Phil. Yes, thanks, for thanks. That, mate. Uh, next up, Mark Carroll, top three, Friday the Thirteenth, part four. Ooh. Suspiria, Colin, <sighs> and of course JC's Halloween. I didn't know Jesus did Halloween. No, it's John Cleese. Oh right. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, Mark. Veronica's dad won. Elm Street, a ridge, the thing. A Ridge, I assume that's the John Carpenter rather than the thing from another world. And Chainsaw Massacre, A Ridge. So sad that I have to add original to every film. I don't know, yeah, I mean, this is going to be an ongoing debate, isn't it, about uh, remakes, but I'm sure this is... Well, let's just say... They've always been doing it. Um, They have, in name or otherwise, but I think it's just the low-gradeness, if that's the word, which it isn't. Um, Now, is it Platinum Dunes, the company that... It's it's the idea of just taking the name and the brand and churning something out and thinking, oh, people will have heard of that name, so they'll come and it'll open us for a weekend and then it doesn't matter if it doesn't mean anything after that rather than taking an original and trying to do because obviously I was joking a bit with the thing I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, Veronica's dad one means the John Carpenter but of course that's well it's not so much a remake of the Hawks is it it's more like going back to the original uh, John Campbell story it's almost like but it's inspired you know Carpenter's wanting desire to do that would have been inspired by uh the original movie yeah exactly I'm sure it's you know it's like when people want to adapt a book a filmmaker does it it's because yeah. they they feel so influenced and mm. overwhelmed by it that they, they just have to make it into a movie and yeah I, I guess I suppose a lot of these remakes now they, they're just money spinners that that love isn't there you know they, it's a director for hire or oh money spinners why can't they go back to House <laughs> of Frankenstein which was made with love <laughs> And finally, we have Colin from the Scottish Review of Books adding his Trippensworth. Trippensworth? <laughs> Trippensworth, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Salem's Lot, three hour version. Uh, that's got to be the 
TV one, isn't it? Is that three hours? Yeah. Um, I'd possibly Hooper's even is longer, longer, isn't it? I would have thought. Maybe it Colin likes it slightly edited down. It was. <laughs> he likes it edited. I thought it was like two movie length episodes, maybe. So um, yeah. I have watched it, but over a year ago, <laughs> way back in the midst of time. <laughs> and then ah, the seventh victim. The seventh vi- victim, this is which um, to your uh, yeah, which me and Colin do discuss at some length. So. Um, and finally, uh, the <laughs> nail in the coffin. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. <laughs> Are you familiar with Tarantino and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein? No. He was listing that. I mean, I'm sure he still would uh, would claim this, but when he first burst onto the scene, he was saying this was a major, major influence on him because he watched it on TV as a kid. Oh, right. And he couldn't believe that you had films like that when the funny bits were really funny and the scary bits were really scary. Um, and yeah, I, I lo- yeah, apparently that would be a, an influence on his kind of mashup of styles. There. Right, but, okay. um, that's fascinating. His big thing is the bit when the mo- I love he, he says this as if everyone's really familiar with the film, <laughs> but happily on TV they then cut to show the clip when the monster picks up the nurse and throws her out the window. She's really dead. <laughs> <laughs> Not like a snuff movie, but you know, yeah. just the idea that it wasn't goofing around and you yeah, know, she fell in a pond and got up with weeds on her or something. But. Um, no, I I I have happy memories of it. It didn't inspire me to become a sort of um, <laughs> diminishing returns filmmaker. But, um, oh no, that's harsh. I think a, a diminishing returns away. podcaster. Instead, <laughs> yeah. But thanks very much, guys, yeah, and really enjoy your it. triple bills, which I hope you're all going to now watch after you finish listening to this podcast. <laughs> they say that machine works wonders. It killed every parasite for miles. We'll have a fabulous apple crop this year, Sergeant. I'm mad about apples. (laughs) What happens when you cross Spain with Italy? Well, you get American actor Arthur Kennedy playing up his emerald ancestry as an Irish copper dealing with a love generation in Manchester that's simply crawling with the living dead for 1974's European co-production Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a.k.a. Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. So another movie which I've... Wanted to watch for a long time. Um, again, I heard of it originally in these like old horror movie books, and even at that young age, I thought that was a peculiar title because uh, even when I was young, I realised Manchester's not a very glamorous <laughs> place. Is it? Um, and I'd forgotten about it for a long time, but in recent years, I think this has had a bit of a, a revival of opinion on it. Um, I think there's a few film critics, including Mark Kermode, have dragged it out as. Um, a bit of an overlooked gem and I was dubious about this and I've got to say I'm not generally a big fan of zombie movies Mm. Um, kind of in the wake of the Romero thing I mean my my main beef with zombies as a monster is once they appear they just there's the contagion thing and everyone becomes a zombie and it just gets it's kind of wearying that you've just got a little group of survivors and it's a matter of time before they all get consumed it's it's a bit like um, a no win computer game where it's just going as long as you can I love Haitian zombies, <laughs> I love a bit of voodoo um, the zombies in this movie are particularly peculiar, although maybe we should talk about them a little later Okay. it is a really good film, I think this is really great, it is still odd that it's set in Manchester of all places rather than swinging well there, it's the Pennines really isn't yeah. it, I mean there's, there's not like, that. you've got the sort of first ten minutes in Manchester um which was quite funny seeing those orange and white buses which I have vague memories of wow. when I was younger I was brought up not far from Manchester so I mean this was filmed 
six or seven years before I was born. But you know that that sort of look of the city still went into um, the eighties. And it's also very interesting to see Paul yeah. Gagrell, who directed the movie. He obviously came over with um, a foreigner's eye to mm. this city, and it's very interesting how he films it. Um, the depictions, you know, there's a lot of cutting between this sort of green bucolic landscapes and then like heavy industry, which Manchester's infamous for. Yeah. Um, it is a great opening. Uh, you've got the main hero, um, Ray, is it? Ray Lovelock. Ray who Lovelock. Was in, uh, I watched him recently in, uh, oh, was it Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man? I really liked him. I thought it was cool. Oh, Matt. Well, he's the hero in this. I didn't he's, he's like him at really all. He's dubbed really badly. He's dubbed very badly, but he's kind of got this um, Richard Branson look, hasn't he? With his, um, oh, I think with he's his quite stuff. a handsome looking chap. No, <laughs> he's got. I, his, I think calling him Richard Branson's doing him. He's got this stuff. little blonde beard and stuff, and he's uh, he rides around on his motorbike with his leather coat and his um, Greek fisherman's cap. But it is the dubbing of him. Um, it annoyed me a lot in this film. Both times I watched this, I was just who the hell does this guy sound like? I couldn't really get to. The, I, he just sound like someone, and I can't think who. It's kind of like a Kenneth Barraboy meets Kenneth Williams. It's, yeah, there's a Kenneth Williams thing. It's specifically, if you remember the old kid show with the wisp, Arthur the Caterpillar had that yeah. kind of very yes. disapproving <laughs> clipped way of speaking. But there's a touch of Jagger in there as well. Yeah, oh, th- there's a lot of Jagger at the moment. There's Jagger <laughs> all over the shop. But yeah, they've got this very clipped kind of annoyed way of talking to people. Sometimes. But yeah. then it, it, yeah, it really like undulates his, uh, his accent. He's all over the shop. What's going on? But yeah, almost immediately he gets sort of whacked into by this woman reversing a car at a petrol station and with very little problem just takes over her car to drive off it <laughs> as if, well, you owe me now, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he's got to get to Windermere. <laughs> everyone's got to get to Windermere. Twenty-four hours from Windermere. <laughs> um, but no, still on that opening though. There's that just weird moment when a woman takes her coat off, is naked, and runs across the street. And the way it's edited, I'm sure it's just that because you don't get reaction shots. No. Looks as if no one gives a monkeys about this. But I think that's a really interesting precursor to the film as a whole. I yeah, think it works very well as a metaphor. It is because which will become more clear as we. Because wondering is that scene about anything? And it isn't. It was just like everyone's so brainwashed and mundane about everything that uh, it also cuts to lots of shots of kind of dead pigeons in the gutter and yeah. smoke belching smoke out belt. and all yeah, this kind of stuff. So yeah, it's got a real feeling of um, there. There is a message to this, isn't there? It's, a, it's, a, it's an eco it's message, an eco. but it's a general kind of the modern world's gone. You know, people we've just slept walked. Slept walking, <laughs> sleepwalking our way um, to disaster. Yeah, um, which you know kind of sounds a bit sixth form, but you know it's 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 a really good message. I think um, I'd prefer the zombies to have an origin like that. You know, the zombies to be a metaphor for what happens if things get out of control and people don't really care about. Um, you well, know, it's, what, it's what's being done in there? It's refreshing to have refreshing, I yeah. suppose. But even though it's a really old movie, to have something so. Um, to have such a unambiguous purpose from the start because Romero's his zombies are you're never really quite sure where they've come from and there's a sort of are they a metaphor in each film there's a, a different sort of meaning or allegory behind them but with this it's from the outset it's pretty much there he's the, the growls message is yeah. um, look what we're doing 
to the earth or, or yeah. to each other um and as zombies uh, they're fantastic is it time to talk about the zombies or have we got a little more to uh no we can do let's go on to the zombies because they uh, again things I don't like about zombies they sh- they they shuffle around very slowly <laughs> um they're stupid you know they're kind of cannon fodder I think a lot of zombie movies are purely about how elaborate the effect can be when their brains get blown out and with this um I think they look really good the zombies they have slightly red eyes but only in close-up but they just I think they generally just look like kind of not to be cruel but mental patients don't they they just have they have an air of someone who's not quite yeah there's 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 an air of someone who doesn't quite have um all the full motor control (laughs) uh and the first one is this kind of tramp with a rope hanging around his neck Guthrie (laughs) Guthrie. he's even got a name yeah (laughs) this is the great thing because there's only about half a dozen of them total through the film but uh, they all have quite distinct looks and personalities don't they definitely yeah um, they move at kind of a lick. They vary, I found. Yeah, you but you, you, you'd have to be on your toes to get away from them. Yeah, yeah. God, we're talking about the uh, <laughs> the pros and cons of zombies. <laughs> well, the <laughs> thing is, there's su- there's such a like um, a canon of zombies in mm. si- cin- in cinema now that you know we've got to the point now where there's, a, there's the an established way of doing said, it. Yeah, you know, all the 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 Dawn of the Dead remake, the 28 Days Later. Yeah. Or the hyper zombies. Yeah, the fast ones that yeah. they shouldn't really be included in the canon. And I, I don't know. I'm all for a variety, to be honest. And uh, yeah, they they did something a bit different here because there are points where they're actually using instruments. And, mm. Well, uh, that's weapons. the great thing. There's <laughs> the scene I particularly love, and it will be of the entire special tonight. This is kind of on a par with Boris Karloff's dog brain transplant that takes 15 years. <laughs> There's a point when the heroes are um, barricaded in at a church and there are only about three zombies outside, aren't there? And they're kind of menacing them, but then there's a scene with two of them lifting up <laughs> a tombstone <laughs> and using it. <laughs> they've organised themselves enough to use it as a battering ram <laughs> and they clearly don't speak, but I love the idea that they've somehow worked this out yeah. between themselves. There's a sort of and, uh, hive mentality there. <laughs> I really love that, though, just the fact that because it is so refreshing after normal zombies that two of them are thinking, hold on, there's a better way of doing this. <laughs> you get that end point. <laughs> that's really well shot as well, because you know, it's like going into the camera, isn't it? So, yeah. uh, so I, I think I was flinching back at first, because it's edited so quickly. Yeah, but uh, as usual, the heroes tend to take this in their stride a little bit, don't they? Yeah, George very quickly comes round to the uh, yes, notion <laughs> to the notion that um, in a nearby field, um, a farmer has employed the services of the agricultural department's experimental section. I <laughs> wanted to work for those guys. <laughs> that using uh, they use it's radiation, sonic. Yeah. yeah, sonic radiation waves to kill oh. the pests. Um, <laughs> um, insects and yeah. whatnot, yes. not zombies, because it. It turn, it kills anything with like a simple a, nervous system. That's yeah. what it sort of works on, which is a great point in this. I hope this isn't a spoiler, but yeah, it kills the insects, but that's kind of the ultimate reason for the zombies. Or, well, it's suggested, and I think it's, we're meant to yeah. draw that conclusion. But it means there's a great scene when they go to a hospital and a baby, a newborn baby, which again has a very simple nervous system, has, has become violent. We don't really see it, but we see the effects of it, and there's some editing. But I think that's a really well done scene, and I I really love it if um, in low budget filmmaking, when someone's thought, 
I can't do brilliant effects. Maybe I'll just come up with an idea which will, you know, rather than padding, they've actually come up with an idea and found a way of de- executing it cheaply. But what I mean is, like, they've taken the setup and worked through a few ideas with it rather than just we've got to get from A to B with this right, film. Yeah. They've gone off on a few little detours. Yeah, like, this is a particularly good one, like yeah. you said, because you have a nurse sort of runs in mid-conversation mm. and like a hands bleeding a finger's bleeding and there's a suggestion her eyes maybe have been pulled out or she's been scratched very badly yeah and she says it's blinded me but I love the fact with that because um, yeah George has just turned up at the hospital to check things out but the doctors are very happy to tell yeah. him everything and say oh come and help yeah, me with give this us give us a hand <laughs> with this injection which is uh, lovely but yeah like you say it's, it's, it's really well done and there's a few other scenes like that. Certainly, earlier on, one of the main characters is established as having um, a heroin problem. Yeah, this is the um, Ed- <laughs> the heroes here, George and Edna. Yeah, <laughs> but it's Edna's sister. He's got these very um, shallow eyes, and her husband or boyfriend, Martin. Big fan of bold men in horror movies. So he's he's great. There's he clearly, looks very Spanish, doesn't he? Yeah, there's not just the drug problem there. It sounds like their marriage is in trouble for all sorts of reasons, including his um, artistic photography. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, little details like that really really give it this sort of very distinct flavour. Yeah, because there's that scene which I was really puzzling as to whether it was in a studio or it was outdoors. Is when Martin um, and uh, what's she called? Katie. Katie yeah. are attacked by Guthrie, the zombie. The zombie tramp. And there's this scene with a waterfall, and uh, Martin's taking photos at night of orchid, well, of irises. I think, yeah, the, but he's got it flowers. on a timer, the flash, hasn't he? Yeah. And it really put me in mind of like Peter Greenaway, the yeah. way he likes. Oh yeah, his it's sets. like Z and Two Nuts. Z and Two Nuts yeah. in particular, and I was just like, wow, this is there's so much that. Artistic endeavour going into Indeed, this. Yeah, no, the brilliant touches like that throughout. Um, I'm going to ask you, who is your favourite zombie? Oh, it's the one uh, just in the hospital, just in his pants. <laughs> is this the one whose head is bandaged? Yeah, he looks like, and he's had an autopsy, so he's yeah. got that scar right down the front of yeah. his um, torso. That's the one. He's great. He had no shame at all, did he? No, um, he, because I wasn't expecting any more zombies. Really, though. you get like. Um, a sort of pocket of four of them and yeah, yeah. I thought they were just going to carry on yeah. so by the time they get to the hospital and he pops up I was like wow <laughs> this is a bonus he pops up in his pants <laughs> and uh, wreaks havoc with the receptionist at the hospital god yeah he um, gets a right handful quite intense <laughs> um, something I should mention which really put me on edge and I thought oh they're not going to do this are they like we said the um, the explanation for the zombies here is this sort of sonic uh, device or radiation I'm not sure which quad it is which works on very simple and developed nervous systems it seems very deliberate when the heroes are holed up at a petrol station um, owned by this woman but her daughter's there who clearly has Down syndrome Yeah, and you're wondering they're not going to do this are they <laughs> and they don't but it, that means it's just a peculiar th- detail to put in I did notice that and I was wondering whether I should comment on it because I don't know it's, it's potentially in the realms of bad taste or whatever well, I suppose y- you can't get much more <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah I thought well that's, that's blatantly going to be used later on but no hmm. it's, it's just a sort of matter of fact you know, yeah it's, uh, but I don't know you quite often get that with like horror exploitation movies where you, things are put in like that because it's to lull you into a 
full sense of no security. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if that's how it's done. Or I, I can imagine actually sometimes the intention was to go somewhere with it and then they didn't. But then they did play with the stereotype of the owner because she's Scottish and yeah. um, she tries to scrimp money, doesn't she? <laughs> well, it's also she when she says, uh, go and get her a drink and the daughter goes oh, yeah. and gets some whiskey. She, she, might, no, not, no, no. <laughs> she might not be able to pay. <laughs> I was like, oh my it. God, really? <laughs> Someone, but I can't imagine... Um, Jorge Grau being aware of that to be honest I don't know someone's probably ignorance. what did I do to you <laughs> um, so we've got this far into the review without mentioning Arthur Kennedy who you know this this is a major point in the story the antagonism between him Arthur Kennedy is this Irish um, cop he's sort of detective sergeant or something is he investigating murders by the zombies but not believing for a second that that's what the cause is but that's, you know, it's a great thing. When he, uh, there's the call of the zombie, clearly Martin has been killed, um, but then when he finds out that the um, the sister is a drug addict, he finds the photographs Martin's been taken, he jumps to um, the wrong kind of conclusions. Yeah. But throughout it, there's that whole thing between him and George, George. and it's really that thing of, you know, authority, you know, uh, the youth versus the man. Definitely, yeah. And... Uh, it's when it kind of comes to a head in a newsagent's by an ice cream can. <laughs> um, a, a big sort of chest freezer full of ice cream with the Lion's Maid logo on yeah. the side. But, um, yeah, he's good in it. I mean, Arthur Kennedy, who's cropped up previously in The Humanoid for us, mm. but, yeah, had a big career. Uh, I think he may have been nominated for an Oscar at some point. I might be wrong. But, yeah, I was wondering how he was going to fit into this, but I think he's pretty good. Yeah, he's just a crazy like fascist cop, basically. Yeah, he did done uh, well in like a sort of um, an, a seventies Italian Euro crime movie. I mean, it, like he fits the mode of that. I, I, funnily enough, Lovelock was in that, uh, Dear when I was mentioned before. Mm. But um, yeah, he's quite a horrible bastard. But yeah, he's just relentlessly uh, right wing. Well, see, he's not very well drawn, and he's one of these people, I suppose, because now we've had shows like Life on Mars where they celebrate this kind of attitude yeah. that the um, police before there was people keeping an eye on them. But yeah, he's, he's he's grabbing people up by the lapels and threatening to throw them in jail for the smallest of things. But it does lead to, and we won't discuss what it is, but a fantastic ending. Yeah, I had a slight issue with the ending. Yeah? It was just a little bit too neat. Mm. It just encapsulated um, what you expected to happen, I thought. I thought it was quite obvious what was going to happen. The problem is I owned the like, Blue Underground um, double disc edition of this, uh, the Region 1, and it's got the biggest spoiler on the front cover of it. <laughs> what does it show, the last frame or something? Oh my god! <laughs> um, I've just uh, mimed yeah, yeah. what it shows, which is really unfortunate. So yes, I was, it is. I spent, <laughs> I spent the whole movie waiting for this, and then when it came, oh up, god, I was like, oh, no! Because I, no, that's I, probably I, what tainted it yeah. for me more. No, than I, I, I love the ending. Known as "Let Sleeping Corpses Lie," but yeah, more popularly known certainly in Britain as uh, "Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue." Although I was having a little look, it's mm-hmm. got a few other titles that it's I known it's as. Got one or two. <laughs> Don't open the window. <laughs> Breakfast at the Manchester Morgue, which I quite like because it's just so. It, what does it mean? Yeah, <laughs> you'd be curious to know what that could possibly be. Morgue's in the title. The sequel good. to Breakfast at Tiffany's. Breakfast with the Dead. What's with breakfast? It gets better. Brunch with the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> get, get away. Brunch with Brunch the doesn't exist in 1974. These it? are later reissues. Obviously, oh. when Brunch was all the rage. <laughs> do you fancy Brunch with the Dead at some point? I do, definitely, yeah. Maybe like you've that. had it already. Beware, Phil and Jim, my isolated podcasting pair. As the darkness closes in, I, Lee Howard, Count Fosco, from the Movie Matters podcast, approach from the shadows with a warning, a cinematic trick for you this All Hallows' Eve. Final Destination 2 is the 2003 follow-up to the 2000 instalment of what has now become an overhyped and underdeveloped dark cloud of a franchise on the horizon of modern horror. The idea of death being a malevolent force that actively hunts you down is chilling to the extreme, Sadly, like the original Final Destination, this sequel turns a potentially innovative premise into little more than a series of elaborate death scenes. The death knell begins after Kimberly, the only vaguely memorable character played by hero's own Ali Lata, has a premonition whilst waiting at the road of a motorway. In a bid to prevent the loss of life she has foreseen, Kimberly blocks the entrance. When the forecasted pileup occurs, attention turns to the explosion of Flight 180 and the events of the original movie. Just as before, the intended victims begin to meet with freak and fatal accidents. Afraid they have incurred the Grim Reaper's wrath by cheating death, Kimberly and the remaining car crash survivors unite in an effort to stay alive. Best described as a fairground ride rather than a narrative film, Final Destination 2 delivers its thrills through the most basic shock tactics. The half-realised efforts of the first film to build tension and atmosphere are never even attempted in the sequel. The one concern is to orchestrate a number of potentially dangerous circumstances before executing the action with quite gratuitous relish. I won't deny Final Destination 2 is easily digested confectionery for the eyes. Extensive servings of blood-soaked gore accompanied by gallows humour will not fail to make you grimace and guffaw. It's just that it disappoints all hopes and all expectations for anything other than the average fare that's come before. Is Final Destination 2 a stinker? Possibly. An overrated and overindulged movie, certainly. But more than that, Final Destination 2 and the franchise it has become signifies indisputably a missed opportunity to create something genuinely frightening, perhaps even classic. Okay, so ahead of our grand finale, we've got a little bit more feedback. Yeah, from Michael Little, um, a new friend of the show. Yeah. Who seems to be enjoying it. And despite, it's... Uh, despite our comments on the last one. <laughs> yeah, so Michael writes, another fun show. It was slightly surreal to hear my email read aloud by two British-accented strangers. At any rate, impress my girlfriend. That's what we do. You know, we just impress girlfriends. On behalf of people with their <laughs> British accents. Hello, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting here with our cucumber sandwiches. It was great to hear George C. Scott get some discussion. He's one of my all-timers. Besides Exorcist 3, Blatty and Dwarf are favourites too. You guys should check out The Last Run and The Hospital for sure. Both are from 71, both are undersung masterpieces, and both are written by two of my favourite screenwriters. The Last Run by Alan Sharp, died. he also did The Hired Hand, Night Moves, Ulzana's Raid... Billy Two Hats and The Hospital by Paddy Chayefsky who did Network and Altered States also your points about the singing detective film are valid I saw it first and before I ever heard of Dennis Potter it was only after seeing the film version that I dived into Potter and saw the original series I still like the film version however for what it is and I think Gordon's direction is very good it's definitely worth seeing at least once and keep in mind Gordon was shooting from the film version script that Potter himself had written before he died. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if Potter was high on morphine at the end, though. <laughs> well, no, not to joke. But he, he was. He had to keep a balance because he, he had to try and get his um, very disappointing last two scripts done. <laughs> for what was it? Uh, karaoke. To. Yeah, no, that was his big plan. He wanted. He had these two um, two series he wanted to get done before he died, and uh, I won't go on about it at any length. But yeah, th- they were ultimately a bit disappointing. Do you remember these? Karaoke. No. It's kind of like his other stuff, but Cold Lazarus is kind of the the character from Karaoke's head is frozen cryogenically and is uh, defrosted hundreds of years later when the entertainment industry sort of plugs into people's memories directly and broadcasts like them. Armor, Pretty much, yeah. Dennis Potter invented future armor, but um, no, Paddy Chayefsky. No, I'm a big fan of alt. Um, I am a big fan of altered states, even though it's a mess. It's it's a wonderful mess. The network's brilliant. Amazing. Um, I think I have seen The Hospital and didn't quite like it as much as those other two films we've just mentioned but mm. um, but um, I'm reading them. yeah I'm reading a lot about Chevsky at the moment there's a great book I've got at the library on um, 100 years of American screenwriting and just the conflicts between Chevsky and uh, Ken Russell <laughs> and Chevsky himself sounds like an incredible character yeah, I, I mean, I read um, yeah, read and then didn't quite finish uh, Joe Esterhaus's, uh biography, uh, Hollywood Animal, and yeah, Chayefsky was his hero, basically. So it's fascinating to sort of get that sort of element of Hollywood being talked about from another screenwriter's point of view. It's really yeah. interesting. But yeah, I mean, Alan Sharp stuff I'm not familiar with. Um, I've seen The Hired Hand, because that was like um, Dennis Hopper followed up Easy Rider with The Last Movie, which is yeah. quite infamous. Peter Fonda followed it up with his thing, The Hired Hand, which is this kind of surreal western. I may have on video somewhere. I don't know. I remember it being on TV a long time back. But, um, yeah, it might be worth having a look into. So, thanks very much for that, Michael. Cheers, Michael. Yeah, good to, good to hear from you. Right, are you ready for the creepiest finale of your life? I am now. Okay. And here's a special within the Halloween special. As part of their monthly cinematic diversion, Cigarette Burns will be having a midnight screening of House by the Cemetery on November the 19th at the Rio in Dalston. Will Fulci be your trick or your treat? Maybe we can help you decide. And there he was, researching suicide. Uh, the times we have to live in. Taxi! An ambitious New York couple move to a home in Boston they definitely feel has the wow factor, and their young son agrees, screaming at the top of his lungs thanks to his sensitivity to ghosts and something nasty in the cellar. Offering property tips you'd never get on location, 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 it's time for us to pay a visit to the house by the cemetery. Our first Fulci. Lucio, Lucio, Lucio. Uh, <laughs> I'm currently reading... Um, the journalist Stephen Thrower's um, called "It's Beyond Terror," the book, which is basically he's. Uh, is it the guy who did? A, is it American Nightmare? Or yeah, they, Nightmare yeah. USA. Yeah, yeah. This book is absolutely incredible. It's one of the best books about film I've ever read, and it's very focused, obviously, on Fulci's work. And it's yeah, it's amazingly well balanced. You know, he knows when something's shit and when something's good. <laughs> really? So, what did he think of this? He likes it a lot. Yeah. Um, you say that with a little surprise. Uh, I did because it's funny because it's included in the 
unofficial Gates of Hell trilogy because you have before this was City of the Living Dead and The Beyond, which are thematically quite similar, a lot more surreal. Uh, but this is a little bit more linear and it was coming to the end of a very rich period of filmmaking for Fulci so like end of 81, early 82 after that it sort of tailed off Um, he made some like four films in two years Uh, but yeah I mean I saw House by the Cemetery a while ago for the first time and really didn't like it at all left it re-watched it and absolutely loved it so this is like the fourth or fifth time I've seen it now and has it gone back up or back down again it's kind of it's at a plateau now right I I, I really it's hard for me to talk about this now because of reading this bloody book it's kind of influencing uh, my ideas you're just a mouthpiece for someone else's philosophy I'm going to try not be today Um, but yeah well, well what did you make of it um, it's interesting that you said he made kind of four films in how long was it? Years. Two years. That's <coughs> Kashi Yeah. Um, I tend to wear black socks or very dark blue socks, and I'm at a stage in my life, have been for a while, where once I've washed them, when I'm bundling them up into pairs, I don't really care too much because they're going to look much of a muchness. This is kind of what I feel this film, how I feel this film was probably made. I could imagine he filmed a bunch of stuff over two years, and it feels like they were just edited together fairly randomly. <laughs> this is, I know Fulci has an amazing reputation, or, well, no, he's got a lot of love from a lot of horror film fans. I'm not sure how many people have written a length about his artistic. Well. <laughs> um, well, the downside of him is uh, is usually the sort of misogyny and things, isn't it? Yeah. It's from certainly New York Ripper, which I'm familiar with. But this I found fairly incoherent. And, okay, tonight has been an unusually spoiler-heavy kind of show, but I'm going to have to ask you a few questions to make sure I follow the plot of this, all right? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to have the right answers. Well, I just want to make sure, because it's possible I just wasn't paying close enough okay. attention, or maybe I went in with the... Yeah, I maybe went in with the attitude of this is going to be a fairly straight-ahead kind of zombie-ghost type of thing, but maybe oh, there's something right. else going on. The main character in this, there's a, there's a young couple, but it's, we're mostly focused on Bob, <laughs> this little kid yeah. uh, who's about ten, who looks, it's got to be said, like a very small Klaus Kinski. <laughs> he does, yeah. He does. He's got he those like eyes. from uh, Willy Wonka as well. Oh, no, he looks yeah. much odder. <laughs> uh, in fact, I was disappointed because last night I saw this footage of, I can't remember the actor's name, is it Giovanni? Fritz, Fritz, Fritz Corraldo or something like that. Um, there's him on stage now because he's like he's, he's kind of my age now, but he's he's got dark hair. He looks more like Mickey Delens from the Monkeys now. But I was hoping he'd just look absolutely infernal. He, he looks fairly scary, but he's the victim in all of this, isn't it? Well, he's he's the one on the receiving end who's screaming all the time and being told to pack his ties up, which is a peculiar kind of upbringing. Toys. But anyway, toys, toys. He's um, he at the opening of the film is told that they're going to be moving off to this new house. He sees photos of it and he can see a young girl in the window. It's a sepia photograph. Um, I think we kind of we get the idea pretty quickly. This isn't really announced till later on in the film, but I think the idea is that she's kind of a ghost or a, or somebody from the past who's able to move through time. 
that's okay. That's a kind of fairly standard horror movie thing, specifically The Shining, I guess. Um, but it then cuts to the girl in question, who's called May, this sort of um, redhead girl, looking into a shop window where there's a mannequin that looks a lot like um, Brooke Shields, got very thick eyebrows, and the head falls off, and there's kind of blood and gore inside this mannequin. So we've got a child who can see a ghost, but then we have the ghost hallucinating. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then later on, the mannequin turns up. Uh, this woman who looks like Brooke Shields, who's... She looks uh, like, is it um, Anne? Is it Anne, the babysitter? Yeah, she looks like the princess from Flash Gordon as well. A bit. Oh, yeah, a little bit. She's got those very thick, thick eyebrows. eyebrows yeah. But yeah, she turns up, so we think it's going to be something ominous, because the ghosts had a hallucination <laughs> about it. But she, not to give too much away, by the end of the film, nothing. she's not bringing any menace to the house, is she, the babysitter? No, she's bringing an element of... She's, a, another element of well, madness. Well, she's kind of on the receiving end of anything unpleasant, if anything. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I don't really either. I mean, this, this, tril- this sort of loose trilogy of films that I made are, are, are infamous. I mean, it's the nearest... Possible um, comparison would be like Argento, like Suspiria, or Inferno. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's and Mother of Tears. I've not seen that. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> oh, it's reputation sky high. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, I know of its reputation, but I, I really hated. I watched Inferno recently, and I hated it for its um, for its dream logic, and it, it just seemed lazy to me. Uh, but I don't know why I can't really elucidate completely why I give Fulci a pass for it but I, I totally do I mean the the Beyond City of the Living Dead again another film that I didn't like that much the first time I saw it but there's something there's there's something so audacious about them in the the snubbing of uh, plotting it, yeah they it, do it, seem to be quite, made on the fly and that gives them a certain energy yeah definitely I guess because yeah it's I, th- I think it's Maybe only because we are doing a podcast, so we do have to talk a bit critically. That's, yeah. that's the idea. <laughs> yeah, sure. That you're maybe looking, thinking, what's going on here? Rather than just thinking, this, re- this, this delivers the goods in terms this of gore and the atmosphere. Mo- and it's the most linear of any of those three films. Wow, this intrigues me because seriously, I mean, I have seen The Beyond, but a long time ago. Right. And I'm, uh, because of the Video Nasty's documentary, I, I know what the ending is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which I'm looking forward to seeing again. <laughs> but no, I. I don't think I've seen City of the Living Dead, but I'm going to check it out because if you say this is the most linear, I'm 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 very curious to see how bug nuts the other ones are. Yeah, because basically in this you've got um, it's a haunted house, um, yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know, deaths are happening there. It's it's a spooky place. No one's really sure why they're happening. So you have a family move there because the the father's colleague was working there. But he committed suicide because his lover was killed there, and he needs to finish off the work yeah, this, that was being. Covered. What Phil's saying now is almost verbatim <laughs> what Lucio Fulci himself is saying because he's in it, isn't he? He plays yeah, the, um, the, the doctor, doctor. who's just telling telling the audience whilst talking to uh, the guy who looks kind of. Um, oh, Paolo. Yeah, Malco, he, is it? yeah, I was thinking when I was watching this again last night. I was thinking that maybe cast him because he he has a slight air of Donald Sutherland to him. Okay. Yeah, he's very. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. but um, 
there's a lot of very bad exposition in this, and as usual, because it's dubbed, I'm not sure how much also, of that is, you know. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to refer to Thrower at some point, but yeah, basically Stephen Thrower like highlights something which is quite obvious. I think anyone could pick it up. But you, the the husband um, Norman, another Norman, we had Norman after, after Taylor, Night of the Eagle, we? yes. <laughs> um, Norman Night is very Norman. much. Uh, Put into the forefront of the film as someone you can't trust. There's this sort of like, there's almost a giallo-like way of uh, misdirecting the audience. Yeah. And that you're thinking he's because there's a number of situations where people think they've seen him before, and he denies this. Which again doesn't go anywhere. No, it doesn't at all. But it kind of lends itself to it. It's sort of like, well, you know, it just trails off and doesn't go anywhere. Bloody hell, does it? But yeah. <laughs> I think the, the truth is Fulch is more interested in building up the the people, say the victims, the people who are going to be screaming a lot. So Absolutely. Li- little Kinski and um, <laughs> and his mom, mm. um, who has great stuff. McCall. Oh, yes. Uh, you having a good time? <laughs> amazing. Yeah. I saw uh, on the City of the Living Dead extras, there's a interview with her quite recently and mm. she's still is like really quite beautiful I think just screaming but her head now, off <laughs> no um, actually to be fair House of the House by the Cemetery is probably a, her, not her best role she's great in the Beyond and mm. City of the Living Dead but um, she doesn't have as she's more the the usual victim in this yeah. but there's a great line in here I hope I've written it down when um, yeah she's she's been a little bit hysterical about um, she heard a lot of noises in the house because the cellar's boarded up isn't it yeah and the husband says um you really should take those pills that your baker prescribed joe baker oh i thought it was your baker joe baker presumably i was hoping her baker prescribed (laughs) some pills for her (laughs) but um she follows this up with um i read somewhere that they can cause cause hallucination man beautiful (laughs) <laughs> which you think is going to create a sort of air of well the audience are thinking am I really seeing this or is this just her hallucinating on some fermented yeast that uh, <laughs> <laughs> the baker's given to her um, like we said at the top of the show it's kind of interesting the four films we've got tonight because they do move through that whole sort of period of horror um, when things went from gothic and atmospheric got a little bit sleazier mm. um, and I think by this point this is the beginning of kind of the modern the beginning obviously people that's Night of the Living Dead really yes, but yeah. uh, ten years after that you know what I'm getting at that this is this is the point when it's more about just being as extreme with the gore as possible mm. I think or would you disagree do you, I, do you think this actually does some, I know what you mean some I, effort of building up atmosphere I think it really does I really think um it's, it's certainly slow in similar kind of way to maybe like zombie flesh eaters is you know, you have this like yeah, <laughs> synchronization yes. of the music, um, but but I don't know. I think it retains plenty of tension, and then when you know when stuff happens, it really bloody happens. Mm. I mean, the opening is like the girl in the house, Steve. Steve yeah, that seems Steve? that seems like a recap of something else. Because yeah, you've got a, a pair of lady breasts almost immediately. <laughs> it's like full cheat for some reason couldn't be bothered to build up and uh, milk that. <laughs> we just um, need that. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd have thought someone like him would have gone to town and tried to get some sort of uh, soft porn titillation from that. But he's he's happy to just have the breasts and the girl sort of walking around looking for her boyfriend 
But not in comparison to the other films we've reviewed tonight, I think they did a much better job of having a straight-ahead plot yeah. built, and you knew what was at stake and where things were going and who people were. This, I think, we've pretty much established, kind of creates mysteries, but possibly not deliberately. It know, just creates it's, confusion. It's to, yes, but I think that is actually something that um, is quite important. It, it, I was going to—it's a weird comparison, maybe. Uh, but like El Topo, mm-hmm. you know, where it's it's a series of very odd, surreal events that are taking place, which only create more like oddities in some way. Yeah, but I'd say the difference was with El Topo and you know Jodorowsky in general. Mm. He definitely, um, I'm not going to say he's a super skilled filmmaker or anything, but he definitely has a you know an agenda, and he knows that's the kind of film he's trying to make. Whereas with Fulci, like I say, four films in two years, that tends to suggest he's just sort of that'll do and moves on to the next bit. That's not to say there's not lots to enjoy about. But he this, was but working with Dan Osagetti, who is the uh, a, a writer who worked with um, Argento as well, and you know they had a. I've seen interviews with Sacchetti and him and Fulci had a big falling out. Um, quite soon after this, but he—if you listen to his interviews, it's all—it's—it's it's very dream logic. And I, I know that sounds like a cop out, and I don't like Inferno because that, for that reason, in a way. But there, there shouldn't be any reality. I think mm. I think you have to be confused to enjoy these films. And yet, without giving this away, even though we've said a lot about the rest of the film, there is kind of a revelation towards the end, isn't there? which doesn't make much odds because ultimately it's about there's something in the cellar mm. it doesn't really matter what the you know identity of it or the nature of it is Dr. Freudstein Dr. Freud. who yeah. I, I love I think he's like one of the best he's horror the best doctors <laughs> really? yeah I think he's great oh. I thought he was kind of so-so oh no I, I, I love the fact that He's been there all that time, like festering. Right. And Given we have done a lot of spoilers, I'll just say uh, Frank in Hellraiser does it a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I like Freudstein because there's something about because he's just sort of held captive in this house. Like, what's his reason to keep on living when he's just living in that basement all the time? Like, yeah. and that's weird in itself. I mean, th- that again, that's that kind of odd dream logic where you shouldn't really get away with it because it's nonsensical. But he should have asked Karloff to. <laughs> Build him a new brain and sort it all out. Well, and then yeah, yeah, and then you have like just following on from the Freudstein segments, which are crucial to the film, really, because that's when all the shit goes haywire. But then yeah, you know, you've got this odd coder as well, which because I think the the main thing you should get you get from this film is that is it was very influenced by The Shining, although mm. people apparently on set weren't willing to say that. But mm. I think that's kind of obvious throughout. You Even I recognised it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've just got a massive soft spot for Fulci's films. I, I think he's had a he's had a pretty rough ride. I think he <laughs> he has got there is something like so unique about his films. He was doing something that he was a director for hire, but he was still you know we're, we're sat here talking about one of them now. So mm. he's doing something right. He did something right. <laughs> Not the misogyny, obviously. Oh. <laughs> um. Well, no, it's made me curious to watch some of his other films. I mean, just the last point I wanted to make, which I was kind of getting towards, was this is a film of an era where it was more about how extreme the gore could be, and I just think the bits between the gore don't hold me enough. It almost seems like those are tent pegs that hold it up every 15 minutes or right. so. We'll have this very over-the-top music, which um, 
doesn't sound like horror film music. It sounds more like very triumphant science fiction music. <laughs> it does sound specifically like some of the chords the Queen have in the Flash Gordon soundtrack. Yeah. It doesn't build menace. It sounds like, you know, go for it kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah, just that, not so much the coda, but just the scene at the end, which, you know, even though we've spilled a lot, I won't describe it in that much detail, but it's the most hysterical ending I can think of to a film in terms of peril and screaming and yet it still has this kind of bit when it stops and pauses before it picks it all up again yes, yes. <laughs> you know the bit I mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man so I mean I yeah I think it's it's ramshackle but when I read it was yeah part of this loose trilogy it made me curious to see the other uh, the other two parts of it I have seen the beyond before but a long time back um, and I did like the maggots Hi Jim, hi Phil, it's Josh from Cigarette Burn Cinema. I've popped by for a bit of cinematic trick-or-treat. For my trick, I've prepared none other than Sam Raimi's pathetic cookie-cutter return to horror, Drag Me to Hell. A bland film full of jump scares and simplistic horror tropes. After nearly 20 years away from the genre, I'd have expected the man behind the evil dad to have possibly learned a thing or two. Sadly, this was not to be the case. Drag Me to Hell is nothing more than a collection of the obvious, and it's such a disappointment it's actually undermined my enjoyment of his other films. But... Fear not. My treat is a fantastic La Residencia, also known as The House That Screamed, as released by AIP, who kindly sliced it down to roughly 75 minutes for a U.S. release. The first film from the director of another personal favorite of mine, Who Can Kill a Child, La Residencia stars Lily Palmer of What the Peeper Saw, and Christina Galbo of Living Dead at Manchester Moor, as well as John Walder Brown of the deeply disturbing Deep End. A giallo in nature and in some ways a precursor to Suspiria as it takes place in a girl's boarding school, one by one the girls are being dispatched by a mysterious killer, complete with a wonderfully twisted, unexpected ending. It's certainly an overlooked and forgotten classic. That's my job done, boys, so I'll head back out into the night. Many thanks. So, the confusing world of Lucio Fulci, the possibly misogynistic world of Lucio Fulci and Tiny Kinski, bring <laughs> us to the end of this Halloween special. I hope you've enjoyed it, listeners. Yeah, so do I. Don't enjoy misogyny, by the way. Don't I wasn't enjoy misogyny that at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks very much to our trick or treaters tonight. But anyway, we'll be back for a regular show in a couple of weeks' time. Um, anything you'd like to add before we go? No, I think that's about it, really. Just enjoy the. Enjoy the festivities. Yeah, season's greetings. And um, don't don't answer the door. <laughs> don't open the window. <laughs> and enjoy your brunch with the dead. <laughs> don't have brunch with the dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you know, the usual, the usual. midnight video at hotmail.co.uk. Visit yep. the website, the nice. With a brand new banner. New looking banner. Which is midnight video.com. Facebook. Facebook still rambling on, but no, that's the that's the place to go. And Twitter at midnight video. Okay, thanks very much. Hope you've enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Toodaloo.
But Chuck Norris, who is a very delightful man, a very close friend, is absolutely lethal. He really is. 